Our scripture is from 2 Samuel verse, chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. David again gathered all the chosen of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all of the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah, so that place is called Hermes Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, How can the ark of the Lord come to, into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care. In the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his life, his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-care, well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each take a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. These are our sacred stories. Some years ago, I tried to delay my sister's fear about my spiritual health and uh, questions about my desperation after death. Uh, and I told her <clears throat> that I joined Covenant, which is a Baptist church. I may have used the word liberal, <laughs> uh, which that was a mistake. So she was definitely alert to the fact that I joined a rogue church. Uh, she was not easily duped. And she immediately began listing the beliefs one by one. So she would ask me whether <clears throat> everyone here believe in, you know, for example, the divinity of Christ. 
And you see, believe in you know, uh, uh, the resurrection? Do they believe in heaven? Do they believe in hell? And <clears throat> I began to realize I didn't know exactly what everybody here <laughs> and, and no one pinned me to the wall saying, okay, well, um, if you're going to be here, we need to know what you believe. Uh, so that, that was... <clears throat> That, that was a problem. Um, but it, it, was, it was a learning problem for me because um, it got me thinking about the difference between this church and, and quite a few others um, about the importance of specific theological beliefs in some churches. Um, one, of the, <clears throat> one of the main beliefs is the inerrancy of the Bible. Of the belief that the Bible has only facts in it. You know, there, there are not there are not ambiguities. The the men who wrote the various books of the Bible knew exactly what was happening. They knew what was in God's mind. They had the dialogue, and no one would question that because every word of the Bible is factually true. Um, <clears throat> it, it's very strange given how the Bible is written, how complex all of that is, and, and how many years often elapse between the events described and they're being written down. And of course you have you know, much oral development of those stories in the interim. And it's, it's strange that people would pick on the Bible and say, well, either it's true, factually true, or it's not worth anything. And those of you who talk about metaphor, talk about <clears throat> difficulties in the Bible, you just don't understand what the Bible is. <clears throat> um, the, uh, and nevertheless, these are the stories, in spite of the fact that we find many difficulties frequently with the stories, and, and it's, it's very easy to find a passage, uh-oh, what, what does this mean? This contradicts something else that's either before or after it, or somehow I don't understand this. And of course it's complicated in terms of translation and you know, many, many discussions are possible. But the Bible is not exactly an easy book to understand. Um, that, that is for certain. Yet these stories are we call them our sacred stories. They are what we have. We, they, they show us the uh, development. They show us the evolution of our religion. They show us the evolution of God. The evolution of, of uh, human beings understanding God. Um, the, the uh, uh -oh, I'll lift it over here. I'll have to read aloud the um, poem. Uh, I'll tell you the book one, which is on the first page of this. Uh, I don't know whether you know her or not. She's a science fiction writer. She's deceased now, unfortunately. She's a, a, a black uh, woman who wrote early on much science fiction. In fact, my son is an avid reader of science fiction. She's his favorite writer. Um, and in this poem, <clears throat> change. Here we are. Energy, mass, life. Shaping life, mind, 
shaping mind, God, shaping God. Consider, we are born not with purpose, but with potential. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. And <clears throat> certainly this passage that David read uh, would suggest uh, Early, an earlier uh, development of, uh, of God. In fact, <clears throat> today's reading presents several puzzles that prevent a serene acceptance of the implications in the text. We read that the anger of the Lord is kindled against Uzzah because he touched the ark to prevent his falling when the ox stumbled. It's strange that a man would die because he prevented the holy ark from falling to the ground from a cart. Uh, and, and the danger of touching such an object was well known. But how did it get on the cart without being touched? <laughs> and of course, <clears throat> in the movie, The Writers of the, of the Lost Heart um, is forever being toted around on carts until finally it's stored in the warehouse for a bureaucratic review of it. But <clears throat> Tradition required that the ark be carried on the shoulders of men with staves on either side of the ark to rest on their shoulders. And so, you know, that would prevent the ark from being touched unnecessarily. And, and the question is, and, and presumably the Lord is already irritated by the presence of the cart, even before Usa touches it. But <clears throat> who's responsible for its being put on the cart? Now the cart is said it's new, and it has been uh, put through rituals. It has been cleansed. But um, David is actually in charge of this whole process because he's using the ark to amplify that he is God's chosen. And it's possible that David is the one at fault. Not Uzzah, in fact, um, who organized all of this. Now, the ark had been in Uzzah and his brother Zahavah's home for some time. And some commentators say, well, okay, Uzzah was accustomed to being with the ark, and maybe he was taking it for granted, and maybe he became perfunctory in his attitude toward the ark. But, but it, it, it's possible that David is the one who is here, since he is in charge of this whole scene of this, of this process. Uh, he wants to use it, the ark as a physical presence, as a sign that, that the Lord sanctions his kinship. Uh, maybe David is the careless one, inattentive to the details. He seems throughout this chapter to be manipulating God with his use of the ark. And there's an indication that David is manipulating um, not just God, but, but the people themselves. Now, this probably might seem strange to those who know David as a wonderful character, as a wonderful person, as a strong person. And we're told here that, um, after all, <clears throat> after Saul, um, God wanted David to be the king. Uh, and I, I understand that People have various qualities. For example, 
When I was growing up, an uh, older cousin of mine um, insisted over and over and over and over again that Lyndon B. James was a crook, that he was uh, a criminal, you know, very much against him. And yet, Lyndon B. James, he did um, bring about laws that uh, improved social issues quite a bit. And, you know, our, our characters, uh, our politicians, our kings are, are mixed. <clears throat> It seems that the writer of this uh, follows the power. In other words, whatever he thinks God believes uh, or sanctions, that's what he's going to sanction, no matter what else happens, no matter what evidence you have that, that might be to the contrary. Uh, and you might wonder, um, or probably everybody here knows, why is the ark so sacred? It, well, it has the um, stones with the commandments on them. And the tradition is that God is not in the golden <clears throat> ark, but rather uses the top part to rest when granting an audience. Um, between the two sculpted cherubim, the, the ones with the wings on the top. But it's easy for people to think that maybe God is in it, and, and that and, you know, wherever it is, there is the presence of the Lord. Uh, of course, <clears throat> and it was all, sometimes carried into battle, as you know, uh, as an emblem. Uh, but it was not all altogether successful. For example, the Philistines captured it, and after a while they returned it, though, because it gave them nothing but um, sores, diseases, and a plague of, of mice. Um, the, this tradition of securing some one physical object or a building for the presence of God, it <clears throat> suggests that we, we do, of course, I know that I like to concretize, I like to make reliable access to power. In fact, um, we often want in its containment, containment to possess this power to use it for our means. For example, to make more power more hierarchical in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, lay people, well, the, the rule changes at various times, but lay people are forbidden to be in certain areas during the consecration of the host. Uh, and speaking of <clears throat> making a weapon of uh, the holy, some, as you know, some American bishops want to prevent the host from touching President Biden's mouth as punishment for his stand on abortion. And of course, we remember the partner in <clears throat> Joshua's Canterbury Tales, his use of fake relics to cure and to pardon sins. And that's the way he made a living. <laughs> um, certainly, if you're in a, a Gothic cathedral, the ribs, the height of the ribs in the ceiling and the celestial light pouring from stained glass makes us think that the might of God is more present inside than outside. That's a very easy assumption to make, given the beauty and the <coughs> awesome high, <coughs> excuse me, of the cathedral. And if you've read um, Henry Adams, uh, Most Saint Michelle in Chartres, you remember that he determines that a certain section of Chartres is, is Mary's, <coughs> and a certain section is Jesus's, as if they lived there, as if 
You know, the, the, those are the sections for each one of them. And <clears throat> remember that Laura uh, several times has told us in Zoom, where we've been meeting previously, uh, that uh, God's power is everywhere, uh, not just in the sanctuary. We're still not in the sanctuary. And it, it is within us, it is within our homes, it's with uh, everyone. And, and we agree, though we're accustomed to localizing God in the space, um, and I remember all of the churches that I've attended, and I remember staring at the moldings. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I remember staring at I was once a member of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, uh, when I was young. And uh, I remember this day, the way the proscenium arch looked, that I was associating with uh, God, with religion. I think it's inevitable that we try to localize, or we just somehow manage to localize wherever we are. Um, <clears throat> Consider the choices that the early founders of our church had to make, whether to remain in the church, which they associated with the presence of the Lord, and accept the words of a minister, not of their choice, or to camp out in rented spaces on Sunday afternoons, often in churches of other denominations. Of course, they were discomfited, but the worship services were their own. They apparently had a strong sense of the divine resource within themselves, a residence for the, the godly, within themselves. Our effective worship service ritual is a development from theirs. Uh, one I find singularly satisfying, uh, fully curated with thought-provoking passages, both from both printed <coughs> literature, some, some uh, take, taken from contemporary works. Of course, before COVID, we associated the ritual with the interior of our sanctuary with the light shaking in the wall um, beyond. Um, doing it long distance to Zoom was discombobulating, certainly at first. Well, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> the technology for Zoom um, finally was uh, worked out, not by me, God knows, but um, <laughs> it was worked out so that finally it was done very smoothly. It was done ex extremely well. Well, back, back to this story. Um, after the three-month interval, now the reason that David did not take the ark immediately to his home is that, after all, God had shown displeasure and killed Uzzah. And <clears throat> so David would have thought, uh-oh, wait, wait. Did he think God was in a bad mood? Um, so he, he stored it elsewhere. And Obed Edom for three months. And during that time, apparently, Obed-Edom prospered, was a much wealthier at the end of the three months than he had been earlier. And so David decides to move it to his own terrain. Um, maybe this is too cynical for Mark, almost as a lucky charm to be used in future years for the prosperity to come. And apparently, he, he did make much profit from sacrifices uh, adjacent to the art, 
And some think that he did not build a temple himself, which finally Solomon built, um, because he didn't need to, because he was attracting enough traffic um, with the ark itself. So David sets out with the ark, making large livestock sacrifices every six steps. And, and commentators have made much of the fact that like, if he does that every six steps, that's, that's much, much more sacrifice than um, anybody had made before. In other words, it's, it's um, flamboyant. And, and there's much, much music. And there's the issue of David's dancing vigorously, wearing an ephod, which, as I understand it, is a linen, a linen apron-like article worn by priests over their robes. Um, Clearly, he, he's declaring himself parallel <clears throat> with priests, or priestly himself. After all, God is on his side. His wife, Michael, complains bitterly that he has disgraced himself by exposing himself to her maidens. And some commentators defend David saying, well, the passage doesn't say that he wore only an <laughs> um, And maybe she was upset because he wasn't wearing royal raiment and wasn't acting in a dignified way, which um, her, her father did more so. Um, <clears throat> um, apparently, when she did love him, she saved his life when her father Saul was trying to kill him and, uh, and uh, suggested to him that he make an escape through a window. Um, and in part, his motivation in marrying her was political, because after all, she was the daughter of, of Saul. Um, the sixth chapter ends with a, a sentence implying that God made Michael barren because of her attitude shown in her outburst. And I'd like to read um, the, the passage. Um, yeah, this is David speaking. David has a long tirade here um, after his wife accuses him of disgracing uh, everyone. <clears throat> this is David. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. The people of the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. In other words, that one sentence at the very end of the chapter is pointed, partly because of its placement as the last sentence, but also because in juxtaposition, immediately following David's um, declaration of his uh, independence and willingness to do anything he wanted to do. And the implication would seem to be that, that the writer knew that um, God made her barren in payment uh, for her accusation of David. It doesn't say that per se, but the juxtaposition would, would suggest that. Um, Okay, the, the, the writer <clears throat> would seem always to follow, as I said before, the, the power itself. Um, and 
So, you know, in, in terms of objectivity, of course, um, our history books, and this is a history book, our history books today sometimes suggest that the Civil War was fought for, for states' rights rather than for slavery. I mean, we're, we're not exactly all that objective nowadays ourselves. But um, it, it would seem clear that there is quite a bit of subjectivity in the, in, in, in the writer, writer of this. Um, some would, would say that this attempt to manipulate using the art um, is, is akin to just giving everybody food. Well, maybe, maybe so, maybe not. At any rate, he is doing everything he can to uh, appeal to, to the people. One might see David's use of the ark as parallel with the uses of obligation to validate our faith in manifest destiny. You know, our, our going west, conquering nature, and uh, destroying the Indian uh, Native American culture was done, some would say, in, uh, because of, of uh, gods making it so and, and suggesting and creating a manifest destiny for us. As in, for example, the concept of a city on a hill, God approved sanctity of our nationhood. Similarly, many congregations rely on the theory that if they do right by God, they will prosper, called the gospel of, of prosperity, um, which, which fits what happened to Obed Edom in storing the ark for uh, three months, because he, he definitely did prosper. And again, <clears throat> It is certainly ironic, more than strange, that the religious people often seek a certitude and immovable rock in biblical passages. It's puzzling because these scriptural words are the most puzzling, most complexly written pieces of literature that, that we have. Uh, commentators over the years you know, have consistently disagreed with one another about the meaning of passages, yet they are the stories we've inherited as the basis of our religious background. They show our evolving concepts of what matters, or what a good life is, or what constitutes a good God. Probably we should be grateful, seems to me, that they are not simplistic stories, um, easy to understand. There's a notion from several theologians that the person who is the most certain in his knowledge of the nature of God is the one who knows the least about God. Thank you.